Vulnerability is strength. So I sit there and I go, so what can I do? Do I want to remember the last three months that when I get to 75 and go, remember that time in coronavirus and New York and you basically were crying yourself to sleep every night, you know, in the bathtub? Or do I remember that time and go, so what did you what did you get out of it? And what I'm getting out of it is vulnerability. And I'm seeing the vulnerability and I'm encouraging it with all my staff and my friends. We have communications with our team online. Jason, my business partner, is constantly emailing everyone to check in. We have some group messaging for our executive team to see how everybody's doing. I think the most important thing is just to be real. Robert Marchetti is an Australian-born celebrity chef and now New York-based restaurateur and co-founder of Grand Tivoli and Pepe Cellar. As founder and CEO of Marchetti Co., his hospitality lifestyle company, he delivers creative solutions that include interior design, architectural, food and beverage, concept creation and design. In part two, Robert discusses his vision for his Manhattan restaurant, Grand Tivoli, and reflects on the economic impact of COVID-19 on New York's restaurants and bars, the business environment, supporting his staff, and how, as humans, we can use this period of time to grow stronger and sharpen our tools. He discusses why vulnerability is a strength and how he has learned to thrive through failure and his perspective on organic food and the industrial food supply chain. I hope you enjoy the honesty, passion, integrity and curiosity of Robert Marchetti. I find this time fascinating just to sort of observe how people are reacting to it because I... I've had no issues at all. Maybe I've had cabin fever, maybe for a couple of hours one day, but I get out on my bike and I go and sort of explore the empty city and hear the the echoes of the canyons of Broadway when you're cycling down there, speaking to a mate you're on a bike with. It's incredible. But I do think that this is going to be a time of a lot of people are going to be reflecting and looking to understand why they are struggling in these times. And I, I wonder what your perspective is on, and how your particular industry is going to come out of this. Uh, both from a sort of a, a mental a mental resilience standpoint, because obviously there's going to be an economic impact on it, but there's also going to be an impact on just how people have reacted to this and how they're maybe changing, and and also from a a customer standpoint, what people will start to value coming because if you've been locked down, I, I mean we're all desperate to go out to a great restaurant, but no one's going to want to go out to an average restaurant. So I'd love your perspective on on these current times. There's kind of almost three questions in there. The first one is, yeah. is that I've, I've got a lot of friends that moved to New York and sacrificed accommodation because it's so expensive here, quality of accommodation, distance from where they work and distance from where they play in order to live in New York to celebrate outside community. That's the thing about people that don't live here, that don't understand the levels of community that's here. That's the first thing because it's, it's rich, poor, small, homeless. Everyone is all, you know, you can have a homeless shelter next to a to a ridiculously expensive apartment block next to a neighborhood, you know, next to commission housing, whatever. And I love that about New York. I, I would never want to live anywhere that's completely gentrified from one end to the other. The second, so the second thing to that is that, so the people have made trips to live here and sacrifice their accommodations in order to live here, work really hard, but enjoy New York's community. Now there's no community except social online and they're stuck in their tiny little places in, the, in some of the undesirable neighborhoods for them and they're starting to get reality checks on stuff and they realize that that's why they came to New York and that's where I think the real you know empathy for that is is, is important so for me vulnerability is strength not weakness mm. yelling and yeah. screaming you've lost control when somebody screams they're, they're, they're calling I just hear pain 
I hear, I'm in pain, you know, when somebody's yelling and that kind of stuff. When somebody's vulnerable, like I'm incredibly vulnerable. I don't not play that whole wear my heart on my sleeve. It's more vulnerable. I'm an empathetic person and I've always got lots to learn. I can imagine, I can't sit here and I'll never sit in my position. The, the level of financial pressures that are now on my partner, my business partner, I should say, and myself, we've lost our restaurant, we've shut it down and our bar, we've furlonged 65 staff, they're all unemployed. I'm a creative director in Australia, three hotel design, uh, you know, a company that has 8,000 staff and put off four of them, 4,000 staff. I'm looking after three hotels as a creative director. Nobody's at work. Nobody knows what their future is. I don't want it. And I could sit there and moan and go, look, I've got everything on the line. I put everything into this restaurant and bar. I've got a small investment in, in, a, in, a, in a boutique hotel in uh, Arizona with a restaurant that's shut and not paying rent and accommodations virtually nothing. So I sit there and I go, so what can I do? Do I want to remember the last three months that when I get to 75 and go, remember that time and coronavirus and New York and you basically were crying yourself to sleep every night, you know, in the bathtub? Or do I remember that time and go, so what did you, what did you get out of it? And what I'm getting mm-hmm. out of it is vulnerability. And I'm seeing the vulnerability and I'm encouraging it with all my staff and my friends. And we have a very communi- we have communications with our team online. Jason, my business partner, is constantly emailing everyone to check in. We have some group messaging for our executive team to see how everybody's doing. I think the most important thing is just to be real. And so the answer to the first question is really, I have no place to, to complain when I know that people have got it so much more, it's so much more difficult for them, for particularly people that may not have, like I can imagine, may not have really work status. So they're getting no medical, they're getting no unemployment. They're both like that. They've got kids mm-hmm. and they live in a place they can't pay the rent and there ain't going to be a job for them anytime soon. That for me when somebody complains that something wasn't available at Whole Foods or somebody says they're bored and I know that that's their biggest drama, I kind of zero out with them. I don't even respond. I have zero interest in that. I'm thinking, how are those people that don't have their work visas and status and that, how are they really surviving? They're not thriving. Mm -hmm. I've learned to thrive in failure and I've learned to thrive in the probability of failure. And the reason I do that is it's a very Elon Musk thing actually because he's not the guru of everything, but he is very... He is definitely a genius. And he's always said the probability of failure is a place you need to become warm and cuddly, kind of get comfortable in it. And so I sit here and go, okay, I could not open my restaurant, not re-employ 65 staff, not open my hotel, lose my gigs in Australia, lose my board seat, you know, a whole bunch of stuff. And then what? So what, what benefit have I got for the next nine, 12 weeks, however long we're going to be locked up for of sitting here and stressing about it? What I can do though, is sharpen my tools and my tools are in my mind. How do I make myself stronger and fitter and leaner and meaner and in the meaner in the sense of really understanding what this is about and use this as a positive experiment to go, well, what are things going to look like on the other side? So that's the first answer, the first question. The second one is, is that I think it was about what the restaurant future is going to be. I think nobody knows the answer to that. And I think anybody that's sitting there lecturing on that is basically, I'm not allowed to swear on here, it's yeah. basically full of shit. I think that nobody knows. The only person I really listen to every day is Cuomo and, and Bill Gates because one's a science-based, one's actually yeah. on the ground. And I kind of go, nobody knows what it's going to look like, right? So I think the hospitality is in a reshaping um, position. Nothing will be like what it was before. Mm-hmm. But people will get back to the way they were before because people's nature is always... 
oh my God, I'm going to be spiritual. I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to bake cakes every day. The minute everybody goes back to work, the credit cards get paid off and everything gets back to normal. It'll be back to normal. Mm-hmm. You know, and some people will have death-defying experiences and some won't. And that's just human nature. At 9-11, we all thought we were going to die. We all stayed home. The world was ending. Nobody wanted to fly. And within two years, we were all back doing the same thing. The 2008 crash was exactly the same. I think everybody will get back to that. The way the restaurant future will look, I have no, I have no idea. But I know this. We're going to end up with 20 million people, maybe, maybe more unemployed. There is 600,000 of hospitality people in New York State right now. No one's working. I do fear... I guess, in, in for a lot of my friends. But one of the reasons I came to New York was try to break the corporate mold because I'm self-funded with my business partner in my restaurant. I have no private equity. <laughs> and trust me, I wish I did now. Um, <laughs> I have no private equity. I have no rich hedge fund, guy, hedge fund guy saying, I just wanted to own a restaurant. I self-funded this thing because I really felt like restaurants were being dominated by global conglomerates and they were, oh, this restaurant's owned by a group of 20 or this restaurant's owned by a group of 10. And I really wanted to go back to my roots and, and really kind of have a ma and pa operation with my business partner and get back in there. And, and even though I work in an executive role in Australia, here I want to do that. I fear this will make it worse. I fear that for the restaurant industry, the only way to survive outside this is to have a corporate takeover or to have mm-hmm. a corporate element to it. And that's going to be really tough. You know, like some of our favorite dive bars that run on cash, right? What's going to happen yeah, to those? That's it's one true. thing to say you've got a loan, uh, a PPP loan. Uh, but, you know, the reality of it is, is that if you take this loan that's non-repayable, you have to kickstart your payroll. And if in three months the money runs out and we're still locked down, you have to fund your payroll. Now, I can't imagine any small business doing this. None of my friends, and I've got a lot of restaurant friends here, will do that. The second thing is, is that, you know, rents are never going to go back to the way they were commercially. So landlords are all going to get a reality check because now it's people are just going to walk away. So I don't think we're going to have less people wanting to be in restaurants because we're all insane slightly. And no matter how much pain we go through, we always wake up and go, oh, I think I've great idea. I should open a restaurant. Usually when you're 25, you do that. When you get to my age, you're a little wiser, I think, but not that much wiser. So I think that What's really interesting about this is in 2008, 9-11, when things started to sort of shape up again, everybody went out drinking. Alcohol, uh-huh. you know, alcohol bars, catch-ups, that stuff. What's really interesting about this, and I have no answer, is that that's going to be probably the last thing in New York allowed to open because that's uh-huh. the hardest part to regulate distancing. I can't have Pepe Cellar, which you've been to. Yeah. Okay. Okay, you, you two over there, and you two over there, and you two over there. Like, it's a bar, you know? So I sit there and I go, maybe I'll open my restaurant first, but then, you know, who says that six, that pay- table of six, two of them haven't got it? So, well, look, I'm no scientist. I can only go on what I listen to and between Bill Gates and Cuomo. And the reality of it is, is that you can't just test someone to see if they've got coronavirus and then they send you a test result so they can come to your restaurant because by the time you get it, they may have got it. So that doesn't yeah. work. The reality of it is, is as Gates said and as Cuomo said, everybody needs to be tested and that's a massive undertaking. So the trick would be, I guess, low-risk people start to socialise in distancing ways. Bars are going to be very difficult to monitor. Uh, restaurants have you know, tables apart by six feet and 50% capacities, but that won't stop the flow. That'll reduce it. So I can't mm-hmm. imagine... I'm not the dumbest guy in the world and I can't imagine the most intelligent people in the world 
can figure anything else out other than mass testing and being able to have a vaccine. And a vaccine is 16 months away. So what does the world look like after this? I don't know. I think it's definitely going to change it. I think bars are going to be the ones area that, unfortunately, bars are the one area that you make more money because you have less staff and higher margins and that the restaurants are the ones that you make the least. Uh, restaurants will probably come back slowly. I think one of the biggest issues for the restaurant industry right now will be the fact that, you know, apart from the fact that there's plenty of people who want to work, but the limitations on people's credit will be uh, enormous because by the time this washes out and we all get out, everybody's going to have overdue credit card stats, uh, money, you know, not money to burn. Everybody's going to be panicking about doing a good job at work so they don't lose their job. You know, happy hour is probably going to be the one winner of the of the moment. It might be just at the end of the week. But I think, you know, uh, you know, there, there's, another, there's another group of um, companies out there that are going to hurt and, it, and it's going to be like food delivery businesses. I can't imagine everybody after this, you know, going, wow, everything's reopened and we're going to start ordering at home again. I think they're going to suffer a massive loss very soon. But, but the reality of it is, is that I think ineptly people will always want to socialize and, and food and beverage brings them together. Financially, it's going to change the way people eat and drink. Maybe not for the one one percent of the one percent, but for the general population. And you know, I heard Trump say something about bringing back a taxable claim so that you can claim sixty percent of your dining bill potentially when going out, and, and actually rolling that out across not just corporations but across the public. So, you know, sixty percent of what your dining bill will be, you can um, claim on your um, tax return. I think that was one of the smartest things I've heard because that will yeah. change the face of the industry overnight because that gives people free money in a way, but it still doesn't, it won't benefit us straight away because people won't have the cash straight away. They won't have yeah. 60% of their money straight away. They'll still have credit card bills, overdue rents, you know. So the only way to fix this really is to print money. The only way to fix this is to, to forgive rents. Mm-hmm. The only way to fix this is to, to, to wrap all the strings out of it because every time we... And when we in 2008 and they blamed all the bankers for getting money and using their bonuses to pay them from the government aid money, everybody criticized that. So now they got away with it. Now we're getting all this money and it's all strings attached. We're not, we shouldn't really get blamed for that. What we should happen now is that if businesses don't get open, and, and to be really, really brutally honest, if the PPP loan, uh, for anybody that's familiar, the mm-hmm. hospitality loan that's come out, ran out of money the other day, uh, we applied for it. And that's non-repayable if you start your uh, payroll and get your people going. But why would any of us start our payroll if we don't know when we can open? Mm-hmm. Because when it runs out, we won't have any money. And even if they, even if we knew we were going to open, let's say we open in three months and we get this PPP loan and it's enough for three months, 25% of it can be used for utilities and rent and whatever. Why? That's still a massive risk as a restaurant owner. There's nothing in it for us, right? The only thing I really would do it for is my crew because I want my people to work, right? But as a restaurateur, if you were to use this as, as a, you know, on a balance sheet, you'd just be nuts to reopen. You'd look at it and go, well, there's no guarantee that business is going to come back to normal quickly. We don't know what our margins are going to look like. They're going to be worse than ever. So I think the government has their hands full with this. There's a lot of issues there. I know that there was a lot of um, heat on some of the chain restaurants, I won't name them, that got big money. I was really proud to see Danny Meyer's group, Shake Shack, yeah. give back their that $10 was, million. That was a great move, wasn't, wasn't it? Really yeah. Bad. Yeah, and I mean, he's always I've always admired him um, for sure, and I can't see why you wouldn't. And he's been given a lot of heat as being the leader in a bunch of stuff, but you know, he's taken it. But I was really proud of them to do that. But you know, it's a really interesting time. I think you know we're not going away. There'll always be a bunch of us crazy idiots that will just mortgage our houses and sell our grandmothers to reopen restaurants. But 
it's going to be tighter. And restaurants were already tight before. They're incredibly tight in Australia. And I really wanted to come to New York to, to, to have a one – I didn't come to New York to open 10 restaurants. I came to New York to open one great restaurant and bar that I could run with my business partner, smell, feel the, the environment and, and shake my, you know, the neighborhood um, people's hands and see them you know, in the flesh like yeah. I used to when I was younger. So, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I really hope that you do reopen whenever that is. I mean, because it's the vision behind what you're doing it isn't probably needed i mean we we need more independent businesses driven from passion rather than from investments uh, from private equity firms just doing it for the profit and the scaling so um, yeah i mean they still employ people i just think that the problem is is that i recently went to montauk for the first time in 15 years and i noticed some great restaurants, but multiple restaurants that are already doing exactly the same thing in Manhattan that are doing exactly the same thing out there. And I kind of feel like I, I lived in Bali for a while. And, and over time, I lived in Bali when I really loved being in Bali because I loved Indonesian food and Indonesian people. But over time, expats from Australia keep bu- building the same businesses they've got in Sydney and Melbourne there. And I'm like, isn't that the point to go somewhere else that, you know, like you don't go to Rome and open a restaurant. They made sure of that the Romans don't have zero interest in what you think about opening a restaurant. And I kind of like that because I don't go to Rome to eat what I eat in Chelsea. I go to Rome to eat what I eat in Rome. So I think that's, that's a real dichotomy because those corporations still hire a lot of people and put a lot of people back at work. So there's nothing I, I can say bad about that. But it loses that independent flavor. It's like the idea of going to Red Hook because you know there's that one tavern that does that one dish that's awesome. I want that dish. I'll get in a train to go out there and, and, you know, Red Hook Tavern, for example, great. And that's their thing that they do. I don't want to go out and eat the same thing 50,000 times in 50,000 locations. I've been here 10 years and it feels like it's changed. There's a lot less originality here than there was before. I think that's pretty much everywhere in the world. I don't think anybody's got that uniqueness anymore um, where you can say that you're you're in uncharted territory. It doesn't really matter even if you're in Patagonia, right? So, but... I think there's still elements of New York and there's a lot still that I love that are really authentic. And, you know, even being able to turn around to one of my friends, Leonard, who's the barman at Walker's Tavern in in Tribeca, and he's been there 26 years and he used to be in the music industry. He'll know every chef that was in the kitchen. He'll tell them off if the specials, you know, that they've got on the day aren't right. And there's a whole story behind all those guys. And I'll sit there often and I'll, I'll, I'll talk to somebody and there'll be, I met somebody, a criminal lawyer a while ago. And he was kind of like probably in his late 70s and he'd been eating there for nearly 20 years on the same day for 20 years. And I was like, where do you get that? You certainly don't get that much in Australia anymore. And I was like, what do you eat? And he goes, same thing. And I was like, of course you do. And you know, and he was just as happy and he looked like it was his first time and he was having a good time and so forth. I love all that sort of stuff. So we all get really sad when those places go, but there's enough of us out there like myself and Jason, my business partner, that are passionate enough to reinvent and recreate these venues. And I still think they will afterwards. It's just, and, and, you know, maybe, maybe this, you know, sort of disruption, if you want to call it, will recalibrate the way landlords also see rents because rents are out of control everywhere in the world. You know, people go, oh, they're out of control in New York. They're out of control everywhere. Sydney's, you know, the average restaurant in Australia five years ago was a neighborhood restaurant was the most profitable that was BYO and licensed and averaged around three and a half to four percent profit. Why would you do it? You know, the yields on apartment are safer, you know, buying apartment than a restaurant, right? So so I mean there's always going to be people that want to do it. There's always going to be restaurateurs complaining about the economics. 
But I think as long as there's enough of us out there to break the molds and there's enough landlords out there to take the risk and, and really back you and understand what they're doing, you know, things will, things will get better. But, uh, you know, we just, we just don't want to end up with like one of those, what's that movie with uh, Sylvester Stallone and he comes into the future and every restaurant is a chain and, and it's yeah. all one restaurant. I think everything was a Taco Bell or something like that. And, you know, you, 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 want to, you don't want that to happen, but they're the only ones that can, you know, f- finance themselves out of trouble and, and furlong their staff and do a whole bunch of stuff. The rest of us actually know the names of our staff and their, their husbands and wives and kids and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and so that's the part of New York that I absolutely adore, you know, because there's still enough places here that are people that are pay their own rent, run their own operation, and have their crew that have been working there for quite a long time. And it could be just a little deli, a little bodega, or it doesn't really matter. It's just the history of New York. is Nowhere I've seen as much diversity in history as this city. I'm conscious of the time. We've got a ton of other questions, so we might have to maybe ask you to do a follow-up at some point. But can we cover the quickfire questions just now? What principles do you stand by? Integrity, honesty, empathy. Wonderful. What hard choices have you had to make that might have been tough at the time, but turned out to be the right decision? Leaving aside, probably the toughest thing has been what's happened recently. Eight years ago, I decided to walk away from a global restaurant empire group because I was miserable, unhappy, and with business partners that I didn't like. I had 500 staff and I basically struggled continuously with anxiety and, and depression and, and decided to just pack everything up and nearly sent my... I went from being relatively well off to, to becoming nearly broke and bankrupt almost to reinvent my whole life from top to bottom. And it was the best and hardest decision I ever did. And it was brutal. I never want to go through it again. And I took a lot of shit for it in the press and a lot of rumor mills and a bunch of stuff. But what I did do is I did it. And I'll never, I'll never be unhappy that I did it. But that's probably been the hardest thing in the, in the world to do. And watching people lose their jobs right now. This is, you know, I've got some beautiful human beings that have really gone they're not just working for us. They came to work for us. Even people from Australia that have thrown, they've sold everything to move here to work for us. And then there are people that have, you know, come come every day in from Flushing and Queens and a whole bunch of places that have gone in and beyond just a job. Um, they're the people that I have the most, you know, uh, angst for. And um, but yeah, probably eight years ago when I when I decided to pack everything up, I was kind of at the top of my game and I'd had enough. Okay, where do you go to discover new ideas? That's really a really good one. Um, traveling, obviously, not now. <laughs> traveling, obviously. Um, and, you know, I, ironically, I go to the weirdest places to find food elements. I don't go where everybody tells me to go. I'll just be at some weird fish place in Savannah, Georgia, that's known for doing mussels, and I'll eat it, and it'll be great or it'll be bad. And either way, I want to reinvent it. And really, the most important thing is really reading history books and cooking history books. You know, LaRousse and, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a great Silver Spoon book of historical stuff. I'm actually in the Silver Spoon myself. I was lucky enough to be put in it. And, you know, LaRousse Gastronomic by Hall Hamelin, there are dishes in there that you just go, wow, they were cooking this in the 1915, you know, 1915 or the 1870s. Or, you know, I read the most ridiculous thing the other day of a, the birds within a birds. I don't know if you've ever seen that. And it's an old English recipe and it's like the biggest bird you can find. And it's got seven birds in its cavity continuously wow. put in like <laughs> one of those Russian dolls and they roasted it all. And I thought that sounds disgusting, but I didn't even tech, but technically my brain is like, how do they make that even good? Uh, you know, so stuff like that, I'm inspired by stuff like that. I'm also inspired by, you know, um, everyday activities when sometimes a dish 
brings back an emotional experience from whether it's your childhood or not. It can be something as simple as, you know, muscles on Fritz and you had it once when you were 12 in Normandy and you were like, I had these most amazing muscles from the coastline and some fries and it just brought back these emotions. That stuff is important to me. I don't, I don't want, I, I even cook when I cook on my own at home. Now I'm still romantic about it, uh, about trending an emotion about it. You know, is it an Italian night? Is it French? I did couscous for Royale the other night at home, made enough for six. There's only one of me, that kind of stuff. <laughs> okay. What's the one problem worth solving? One problem worth solving for me is probably homelessness. Hmm. Because I think when somebody has a bed and a roof over their head and a regular meal, they can pretty much do anything. And, you know, being on the street is, you know, I can't solve every disease out there and everybody has their disease they want to solve. And my, you know, but homelessness for me is just, it's, you know, the, that for me breaks my heart because I think there are, I used to, run a homeless shelter in in uh, bondi beach called norman andrews and it was a it was a homeless man that was known for 20 years hit by a car out in front of the restaurant this woman decided to open this home and i i did what i could you know food and stuff and whatever and what i realized is was some genuinely really amazing people you know i'd met a professor that had three children and hadn't seen them in 10 years and suffered schizophrenia i'd met you know just dudes that were just super normal and just like look i just I'm homeless. What can I say? Mm -hmm. I think if you could solve that problem, there's a whole generation of people out there that um, aren't mentally um, ill or, and, and, and they need help as well. But um, a roof and a bed can solve so many things. We met a great guy in London uh, when we were across doing some interviews there in May called Isil, I can't remember his second name, but he runs an organisation called Change Please and he takes homeless people off the street, trains them to be baristas and then sends them round in their little barista carts to undercut the costs of the Starbucks and the Pretz. And creates <laughs> opportunity. And it's, it's, it's fantastic. So yeah, so we agree with you. But sadly, I think that we're going to see be, it will be a, a bigger problem to solve over the next um, few years coming out of this crisis. If you could turn to one night, one day in history, where, when, and to see who? Gee, that's a tough one. Do I choose between my mother and father? They're both passed away. I had no regrets with them, so that's a really good question. I thought about that yesterday when you sent me that question. Probably, probably my father again. My father, I named a restaurant after him. His name was Giuseppe, and that short is Pepe, hence Pepe's cellar mm -hmm, yeah, where yeah. you've been. And then Grand Tivoli was kind of, you know, the restaurant was a made-up name. But he was eating spaghetti of vongole calamari fritti and a little raspberry torta on the Thursday and on the Sunday he was dead. And we knew he was dying. He knew he was dying. It wasn't, you know, but I guess, you know, if I knew it was Sunday, he was going to pass. I probably, I was there and I sat with him and we ate and da, da, da. I probably would have stayed a little bit longer throughout those days. But I also remember he got to walk into a restaurant I named after him called Giuseppe Analdo and Sons. And he got to eat his favorite food. And then on Sunday he was gone, and he didn't suffer the pain that he what we thought he would. So probably that at that point, sit here with him and probably just you know go on a bender of lunch and dinner with him and <laughs> that whole stuff. And my dad's you know my dad always used to have this thing where he used to go just pour me a little bit, pour me a little bit. I go, Dad, that's the ninth little bit you've had. Right, let's just agree that you're drinking a whole bottle. So so yeah. probably that um, you know, and he just loved his food and and uh, loved the restaurant. Was very proud of me. Wonderful. What's one question no one asks you, but you wish they would? Is your food sustainable? Is your food from sustainable sources and, and, and has integrity to it? I mean, it's one of those, I've, you know, this has been an ongoing battle. I opened Grand Tivoli Restaurant and I bring in beef from Tasmania, from the cleanest air in the world, um, lamb chops from Montana. I use no, no farmed, factory farm fish. 
I use, you know, bringing in farroa and salmon from Scotland, which is the first organic fish in the world, line caught, sustainable product, organic and free range where I can. And sometimes it bugs me that people don't know the difference. And I do it out of support of those industries, but also because I believe in it. And so a lot of times people go, oh, it's really tasty. And it's not their job. And I'm not trying to be a school, but I wish people would probably ask a few more questions about where food comes from and the sourceability of it, because I know a little too much. And what that means is that I, uh, seven years ago, spent a couple of years studying nutrition and, st- and studying um, sourceability and, and being part of a campaign no longer, but I was the campaign uh, money raiser for uh, Animals Australia to end factory farming yeah, globally, yeah. mm. an activist group across the world. And I saw things that I've never want to see again. And I, we had investigative teams in factory farms all across the world in Dubai, uh, Jordan, uh, Australia, and even America, and things that you just were horrified to think. And, and, you know, there's this sexiness that we just dress things up, put a sausage in the casing, and put it with some peppers and put some Italian music on and romanticize it. When you trace that back to its original product and you see what the animal went through to get to that point, it's pretty horrifying. And, and when I love when I see a chicken with its head on because I want kids to see that. I want them to know that they're eating an animal. Whether you choose to be a vegan or not, you know, I, I did a lecture a while ago about veganism uh, a long time ago on a stage and, and, and uh, you know, people were questioning me all about food and this and that. And I, and I threw it out there and I said, I'm not here to judge you on what you're eating. I'm here to judge how we treat animals. That's it. If you're going to eat them, give them a life, you know, to the point of death. And somebody said, well, why don't you just be a vegan? And I said, okay, and, and sorry to drag this on. I turned mm-hmm. around, it was like 800 people in the audience, and I said, okay, well, let's be really honest here, okay? I, at that point, I had a butcher shop. I had an artisan butcher shop. I made very little money, but it, was, it won a bunch of awards in Monopole for design and product, and it was all organic and sustainable. And the guy across the road at a supermarket, he was selling $3 a pound sausages with God knows what was inside using collagen that they use in boobs to basically make the casing. I'm using free-range happy pigs, you know, natural casing, no preservatives, blah, blah, blah. I'm $5 a pound. Uh, so the, somebody said to me, well, you have a butcher shop and blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, why don't you become a vegan? I said, I don't want to become a vegan. I just don't want animals to suffer. And I said, but also you're questioning now my, my consumption or you can question my philosophy. And they said, well, we're both. And I said, okay, great, perfect. So how many people in this room are vegans? I'd like you all to stand up and, you know, 800 people at a, a food thing, which was about activism and stuff, 60% of the people stood up with the vegans. And I said, okay, great. So now you're, are you questioning the death of the animal or me consuming it? And they said, you consuming it and the death. And I was like, okay. So how many of those people sit down that aren't wearing leather? Sit down if you're not wearing leather. And of course, you know, Half of them Mm -hmm. probably sat down, but there were a good two, three hundred people standing with leather. So I said, now we're talking about something completely different. I'm talking about the well-being of the animal. You're talking about the consumption of the animal. Which one is it? Because you're still killing an animal by wearing a leather jacket. And I'm just talking about its well-being. So let's not get those confused. And so that's the answer to that. So I guess the question would be, you know, the answer, the long answer to that question was, I wish people would ask more about where their food's from and make better choices and not use the excuse that organics is expensive because, yes, organics is expensive, but you don't have to always eat factory-farmed animals. You can choose to eat something different. You can choose to ask the question at least so that people become more, you know, restaurants can't be the campaign for everything because eventually they have to make money or they go broke, but there'll never be enough organic food in the world to, to feed the world. So we have to either eat less of something, but 
there are people out there that, you know, don't really know what's in their food. Mm. Yeah. That's the answer to that. Okay. Um, I'd love to <laughs> carry on with that because that is something that fascinates me and I'm very passionate about it, but we haven't got time. So we'll move on. Who's made you reevaluate yourself? You know, to be honest, a couple of my really close friends, my, uh, one of them, Jeremy, uh, who's a very old friend of mine, uh, another Englishman, Mark, who's a very close friend of mine, vulnerability from their side has shown me to be vulnerable and to really assess. I only care really about the close friends I have and those people, what they think of me. The vast majority of people have zero interest in what they think of me. And I don't mean that in a narcissistic way. I just can't, you, can't, you can't give out that much energy. Otherwise, you just don't have enough. So they've made me reflect on a bunch of stuff and made me really strong about how to make a decision moving forward and not worry too much about public image. Mm-hmm. Impossible question. What would your advice be to someone that's being told whether ambition or dream uh, is, is impossible? Do it for somebody else before you want to do it for yourself. Don't, mm. don't fall into the trap of somebody telling you that just figure it out, say yes and figure it all out later. It's, I've heard that from some really powerful people in the world and that's because they have an appetite for risk and I get that. But the world's a lot different than it was 50 years ago when they were the first ones attempting it. Uh, you know, we're a lot more connected. So if you can make somebody else something, whether it's the return or whether it's you know financial return, or whether it's a great invention, or whether it's a great food product, or teach them something, then hell, you can do it for yourself. I think you learn a lot, and also you learn by using somebody else's money and time. But you can't start lecturing people on how to do your own thing when you haven't done it. It's very easy in this world to jet direct from an armchair. I take shit all the time. I have as many great people that comment and send me emails and thank me to as many people who criticize me. And if you haven't got people criticizing you, you're not doing it right. Because in the end, people need to be criticizing because they're sitting on their armchair. They're looking at you going, well, well, I would have done it differently if I was running it. And you go, sure, but you're not running it. So the reality of it is, is that, you know, really do it for somebody else first. And when you're young, do it for somebody else. Make the mistakes you need to make. Don't give up your day job. Make sure you can pay your rent. Don't do this whole entrepreneur, I want to have a Mac and I want to live, you know, nomadic lifestyle. And eventually you're going to have to pay the rent. So it's either now or later. (laughs) So I think that's really important because then you have something to reference. When you really go to the bank and ask for money or ask somebody private equity for money, you say, like, you know, like Shark Tank, you go, I've done all this stuff and here I am now, I want your money. And be prepared to, to be rejected a shitload of times and be prepared to fail more than that. Great answer. Last few questions. Uh, what's your go-to karaoke song? Oh, sweet child of mine. Guns and Roses. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> love to hear that. You don't really have to sing that. You can scream it and no one will know. They'll just think you're great. <laughs> okay, um, with all the time in the lockdown, what's uh, the best Netflix or Amazon or Apple series that you've watched that you think someone else should watch? Oh, that's so bad. You know, I've actually really fallen in love with watching Bosch, B-O-S-C-H, on Amazon. He's a uh-huh. really fantastic actor that kind of you've seen, but you never really remember his name. Bosch, that's been great. And uh, there was um, The Righteous Gemstones, uh, mm-hmm. with John Goodman, which is completely, absolutely insane. And on those days where I'm like, I'm generally a documentary kind of human being and I like to learn and because, you know, me, me, always wanting to learn stuff. But The Righteous Gemstone is just so insane and ridiculous and fun. Uh, and then, you know, uh, ashamedly, I'd have to say that it, I only started watching the, the, about a month ago, Curb Your Enthusiasm, and I'm like <laughs> on series four 
And I put it on ritually every night, a couple of series while I'm cooking because you can listen to it. You don't yeah. actually visually have to watch <laughs> Kirby. And he is so awesome because he's so dysfunctional uh, that you just think, fuck, you just can't do anything wrong with a guy like this on television. I mean, I think he's fabulous. Okay, they're great ones. Put them in the show notes. Um, what book would you like to offer, um, us to offer listeners that submit best comments um, on the comment section or on Instagram? And I know you mentioned a book earlier, which was called The Surrender Experiment, but is there a- Surrender Experiment, Michael A. Singer. Uh, there's another book called uh, The Gift of Fear by Gavin mm-hmm. D. Becker. He's the author of Protecting the Gift. So he's got The Gift of Fear, you know, promotes this book and save your life, but I don't know. It's a really good mentality one, but those two books combined, I think Surrender Experiment right now couldn't be more appropriate through you can't control what's happening. Nobody mm-hmm. can control what's happening. Even the president can't. And so Michael A. Singer is written Untethered Soul, which is a great way to look into yourself. But the Surrender Experiment is just so applied now with, with being able to just embrace what's happening around you, allow it to happen. That doesn't mean getting rolled over when you read it doesn't mean being a pushover. It doesn't mean lying in the banana chair all day and just going, let, let's just let the world roll around me. But it does mean, you know, there are some things you can worry about and some things you can't. And, and you know, if you've got the right energy, uh, you can mm-hmm. reshape yourself on a daily basis. Brilliant. Okay, final question. Who should we interview next? Who should you interview next? That's a damn good question. And the contextualizing, because some people have said, oh, go and uh, interview Elon Musk. It's people that we rely on serendipity. We haven't even asked you about serendipity. We don't choose our guests. We started off with two people we knew and let them recommend who we interview next. So it is a completely random serendipitous experience, this whole podcast. So Maria recommended you. You know who I really love? He was the branding and development manager for Richard Branson for 20 years. He'll hate me saying this, um, whether because he whether he wants to do it or not. But Mark Gilmore was is uh, a virgin lifelonger, lifer, and uh, I, he's one of my closest friends. He's got all my skeletons, um, mm-hmm. and he's back in London actually. But he's been living in New York for the last two years, and he was doing a project that I worked with him under NDA. But he's a fascinating human being because he really goes within himself. He does not focus. He's still not on Instagram. He's still not on Facebook. He had a very high-profile position. He wasn't hiding from anything. He just he was he was the person that got to New York and showed me how to use New York. He was the guy, the Englishman that got to New York. He got that city bike. He went to the plays three times a week. He went to the shows. He did a bunch of stuff. I think he's probably one of the best human beings I know. Well, sounds like a wonderful person to interview. So if you're happy to make the introduction, we would love to speak to Absolutely. you. Absolutely. I love that. Okay. And we just wrap up um, just with uh, acknowledgement, first of all, and apologies for the internet connection. I have to get that fixed. I mean, it's an amazing story. I mean, you've been completely entertaining and engaging uh, in this with just some wonderful answers. And I, I wish we had a chance to sort of meet you at Neuhaus and uh, do this face-to-face or even over a glass of wine at Pepe's, maybe do a follow-up. But um, I just want to acknowledge you for your wonderful storytelling Clearly, you are a person of integrity and deep passion. I didn't. We didn't talk about this, but I think from what I've read about you before, you're a person that takes road less travelled, and you're a person of person of deep curiosity. And I think that combination of being curious and and, and taking the road less travelled uh, opens up interesting opportunities in life. And you seem to have had an extraordinary list of opportunities, and hopefully, serendipitous connections will emerge that will lead to your business creating wonderful experiences for people in New York and beyond for years to come. So keep up the amazing work and thank you very much for your time. Amazing. 
Hey, thank you so much for having me on. And uh, it was it was fantastic to talk to you both. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time. Hold up. 